Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Smart Cities Chronicles, your podcast for everything Smart Cities action, investment, and outcomes. My name is Adam Beck, your host, my day job, Executive Director at the Smart Cities Council here in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and today, bringing you a second part in a series around the origins of the Smart Cities movement. Uh, and joining me on the line today is uh, is my boss, Jesse Burst, founder and chairman of the Smart Cities Council. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Um, Jesse, we've got listeners scattered all over the world. Um, can you give us a, a quick bio, who you are, what you do, where you're located geographically, just for the record? Yeah, so I'm Jesse Burst. I founded the Smart Cities Council back in 2012. Before that, I was the founder and chief analyst of uh, Smart Grid News, which was the internet's first smart grid site and became the largest uh, smart grid site. And before that, for a couple of decades, I had been a technology analyst and um, um, so that, you know, that was sort of the flow. And today I live in uh, a, an American state called Washington up in the Pacific Northwest. So the so upper left corner of the United States. And uh, I live uh, near the Columbia River, uh, right across the river from Portland, Oregon. It is a certainly a beautiful part of the world, Jesse. Um, let's... Uh... Let's sort of dig in here and, and sort of start at the beginning. Um, what, what happened? When did it happen? And why did the Smart Cities Council come to be? What can you tell us? So, you know, as far as in my role at Smart, uh, at Smart Grid News, as an analyst, I was in constant dialogue with CEOs and CIOs of the companies that made up that industry, which included many of the mainstream technology companies like Microsoft and Cisco and, and others, but also the, some of the specialists who were building the, the smart meters and uh, other components of a smart grid. And during those lunches and dinners, um, we began to talk and notice that these same technologies that made the smart grid possible we're also making smart cities possible, and you know that it was a sort of a logical extension. So these Internet of Things ideas about sensor networks throughout the um, uh, um, throughout the region, uh, bringing back information uh, that can then be analyzed to spot trends and opportunities and problems. That's the same technologies that make a smart city possible. And we began to discuss how uh, these companies and these cities could make that transition and began to realize that, you know, we needed some kind of an organization to do market acceleration, do that early market education to help the cities, the customers come along and to help the, um, the industry participants, the vendors uh, get together and start establishing um, standards and interoperability. And, you know, that was the genesis of it. And it was really a couple of companies that really uh, sort of pushed me in that direction through their insights and findings. And one was Cisco and the other was uh, ITRON, which is the maker of smart meters. That era, 2012, Jesse, um, there was sort of a, a lot 
going on kind of on the marketing side of things, you know, IBM, you've mentioned Cisco. Uh, it was, it was a pretty sort of fluid time in the marketplace around the idea of the smart city. Can you, can you remember how sort of grounded or defined the idea was back then? What was sort of floating around in the marketplace? What, what was the level of intelligence or, awareness of, of sort of the demand side of, of government and cities around that idea back then? Uh, you know, it reminded a little bit of the early days of the smart grid. And, you know, um, in both those cases, smart cities and smart grid, the first two or three years at every conference, uh, almost every keynote speaker would stand up and say, well, nobody really knows what a smart grid is anyway, or nobody really knows what a smart city is anyway, but blah, blah, blah. And um, I think that was one of the things that, that we set out to accomplish was to help cities understand just the core concept and get that fundamental grounding that would then allow them to begin deciding when and where and how they could participate. So it was chaotic, and those yeah. <laughs> early uh, smart city projects were often led by a Cisco, but even more often in the early days by IBM. And you know, coming from their background at that time, you know, their solution was to send an army of consultants to, let's say, Rio de Janeiro, and then a couple of years and uh, many millions of dollars later, Rio would have a you know a. An, integrated operations center, let's say, um, but it had all been sort of uh, hardwired and custom configured and built on the fly, and it wasn't really scalable or, or reproducible, you know, so then they would send their army to the next city and kind of, um, you know, assemble everything from the ground up again. So this... Um this sort of idea is evolving in, in, in the marketplace. Um, from the council's perspective, the Smart Cities Council, you, you sort of, you know, ink on paper this idea that a smart city is, is sort of, you know, one that can help advance livability, workability and sustainability. I just, just want to, for a moment, understand what your mindset was back then you know, that's, that's a very outcomes-focused kind of approach to smart cities, which, of course, we all love and we know and we all agree with now. But um, dare I say in 2012, talking about livability and sustainability in the context of smart cities may have been considered a little radical. Where, where did those words come from and why? Is, is that your background, your history? You, you sort of took a punt that it was... A good set of words. What was the what was the thinking behind that? You know, you know, I had been an um, IT analyst for twenty years or so, and um, and like so many people, um, I did a little bit better than I had any right to in the internet years, and that gave me the ability to take a brief pause and say, kind of, what do I want to do for my next stage, and. I wanted to do something that was a little closer to my personal values, and I'd been a long-time uh, donor to the Nature Conservancy and, and other environmental causes. And um, as I looked around for, you know, what was the next big thing, I really became convinced that energy was the, the planet's um, biggest problem because it not only is it a problem in and of itself, you know, fossil fuels and 
And these were back in the days of when we thought there was going to be peak oil and we didn't know about fracking and other things. And, um, but we did know about the consequences of, of fossil fuels. So, um, I, I, they, and had, having been an IT analyst, the place where energy and IT meet is the smart grid. So that's how I ended up in uh, the smart grid. And as it happened, I had grown up in a small town in the eastern Washington state that happens to be home to uh, one of the nation's uh, national laboratories, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. And as a young man, I had... Um, become a, uh, a, a national scholar um, and received an award for, for, for them, from them. And I, many years later, came back and joined their advisory board. And among many other things they do there, they were one of the leading research centers for this whole smart grid concept. So those, because I had an inside track on this, these technical and scientific developments, and because I had those personal interests in energy outcome for the planet. Uh, started uh, the smart grid. And back to the triple bottom line, you know, you may say it, some people say it, people, profit, planet. Uh, I chose to say it, livability, workability, sustainability, or uh, yeah, but same idea. And back in those days, you know, the idea of a triple bottom line was a kind of an idealistic, aspirational, futuristic idea, kind of like, um, you know, if you go to small local shops here in America, a lot of times you'll see a sign in the back and it says, um, do you want it fast, uh, you know, fast, cheap, or two, you know, that's the joke, right? Mm. But it just, came home to me that we can't just get by with any two of this triple bottom line. Um, not only is it um, advisable in, uh, to, uh, to, to achieve all three, it's essential. I mean, literally to our survival on the planet. I often say that, you know, to heal our planet, we have to heal our cities. They're 1% of our land mass. And you know, roughly 80% of these emissions that are, are uh, slowly killing us. So, um, so that that was the you know the outcome uh, orientation that I took. That we not only could we with these new technologies, but that we should, or that we must, that we had to achieve a triple bottom line for our cities. Uh, so let's let's sort of play that out now in terms of the the first key task of the council. So uh, the council sort of is set up 2012. You then embark on this ambitious project and goal to create a handbook for cities. Um, the result is, is the readiness guide, the smart cities readiness guide. Um, a number of people have, have, have seen that 400 pages, um, a lot in there. Can you talk us through that process uh, that was not a short project by any means when you look at it um no, no. Uh, why did that of all the things that you could have done as a new organization why start there well again having a long background in technology um 
I did uh, understand and intuit that we had to take cities, uh, these cut, this new customer set, through a sort of a typical process of first getting them out of confusion mode and into conversation mode, and then getting them out of conversation mode and into action mode. And as I said, everybody was, what is a smart city anyway? And then um, from the vendor side, it was a little bit like, what is a city anyway? I mean, you know, they might have had a um, relationship selling servers to the IT department or, you know, or, or, you know, software to human resources, but very few vendors really had an understanding of what a city is and how it operates. And of course, as you know, Adam, it's so different than the, than the private sector. So we set out to tackle that first thing of really defining for both sides, what is a smart city? What are all its components? What are a few of the frameworks we can use to understand this? And most importantly, understand how it all interacts, how it all interlocks, how it all works together and needs to share infrastructure and, and share data and share costs. The, um, the readiness guide, um, I've still got a, a bound copy on the edge of my desk. It, um, it hasn't really dated when I go back into it sort of on, on a weekly basis. Um, just a personal reflection from you, Jesse, um, you know, I, I engage and I'm sure you engage, you know, with, with government and other stakeholders, you know, every day, every week. And that question is still asked or that statement is still made. Oh, you know, the smart cities, you know, ill-defined, you know, no framework, no, no sort of methodology. And it's quite interesting sort of, you know, when I respond to those saying, well, you know, way back in 2013, we kind of wrote a book about that at the Smart Cities Council. Re reflect on that sort of, it's been a while now, right, since you put pen to paper. Um, how, how do you feel that we're, we're sort of collectively going in terms of getting our head around this issue? Well, I think we're, we're making great progress in terms of um, mayors and other uh, leaders understanding uh, the importance. And it's very hard to, you know, talk to a, even a medium-sized city mayor these days uh, and not have them um, have smart city on their agenda of things they want to accomplish. I think actually just today uh, in USA Today, a national newspaper of ours, there was a story about one of our presidential candidates, a man named Pete uh, Buttigieg, and he um, happens to be the mayor of uh, South Bend, Indiana. And I first met uh, or saw a Pete at a White House, a Smart Cities Forum, and he was on a panel there and talking even back then about you know, using this technology to improve uh, livability, workability, sustainability for, for South Bend. And, you know, he's continued to track that. And he was just saying again, you know, in the newspaper today, um, how he, he feels that's a, a cornerstone of progress for the, for the company. So we're certainly making progress in terms of um, cities and, and leaders understanding uh, the importance of it. I also think we've come a long way in terms of the vendors understanding how everything uh, works together. And, you know, CIOs, at least uh, CIOs of larger cities, really have a, a pretty solid grasp of the essential components. So to that extent, I think we're, we're making progress.
It's a, it's a challenging one at times, isn't it? That sort of city vendor relationship, um, you know, technology companies and advisory firms, you know, they're, they're sort of core goal is sales, right? And, and, you know, and fair enough. Right. Um, and so the sales cycle is one that is often, you know, 12 months, it's driven by targets. Um, it, it, it still continues to be a bit of a rub for cities that are just trying to get their head around this, make some, some early moves. Um, is, is there any sort of innovation or, or case studies you've seen where that, that sort of vendor city relationship has really sort of changed or you've seen examples where, you know, there's, there's really exciting opportunities or models out there? Well, I first of all, I think it's, we should acknowledge that there's pain on both sides. And the sort of key issue is this uh, historical uh, silos, right? Uh, cities operating in these really distinct uh, departments with their own budgets and usually their own IT budgets. So um, historically, they've, you know, they've run and they bought their own computer systems for their department. And um, those things didn't talk to or connect to or, um, you know, with, with other systems in the cities. And by the same token, uh, vendors are typically um, have that same um, stovepipe mentality. And so they've been selling servers to the IT department for a long time, but um, don't know how to in, uh, sell a system that uh, embraces many departments, something that uh, even if it starts with a single department can later be used by many and eventually all departments. So they don't understand that selling and cities don't understand how to buy that way. And so in this country, at least, we've really been held back by this um, project orientation, single department, single purpose networks, single purpose projects, um, and this lack of this organizing principle. You know, back to the readiness guide, you know, what markets need and people need are, are sort of a metaphor, right, to, to understand um, and to make further progress. For example, in chemistry back at the, in the first part of the last century, you know, they came up with this um, metaphor for an atom, like a little solar system with a, you know, a sun in the middle and little electron planets rotating around it, not how, and we know now from quantum physics, that's not what a, you know, uh, really <laughs> looks like, but it was a great metaphor, mm. right? And it helped, and we did all, you know, 50 years of great science using that um, metaphor, and the um, same, same for, for, for cities. Um, we, we have our smart cities framework, and there's others, but, but that um, kept them. So cities buy department by department, vendors sell department by department, and that's uh, really been uh, an issue for both sides. Just stepping, stepping sort of away from, from sort of procurement and vendor city relationships, is there, is there a heavy lift or a big lift that you feel we're still yet to sort of break through in this sort of aspiration to really accelerate and scale investment in action? If you could put your finger on one thing, what's that big lift still yeah, remaining? It's a little bit, anal a little bit analogous to 
20, 30 years ago when the private sector began to move to what we now call an enterprise architecture. So um, now, not a centralized system as back in the mainframe days, but sort of an architecture that let different um, um, pieces uh, work together, share data, share some central resources, sort of kind of a loose federation approach, but with a lot of standards in place that uh, um, allowed interoperability. And uh, initially kind of uh, sharing data and some resources, but eventually to, uh, actually sharing code, sort of one of the uh, pivotal moments in Amazon's success for instance, was when Jeff Bezos sent out a company-wide memo mandating that all systems, you know, in the future would, would um, for, for internal use, would use the web services approach, you know, this a flavor of this enterprise architecture that made it possible for people to then reuse that code somewhere else, right? So you write this database call, but somebody else can grab that little piece of code and use it to make database calls for their, their own applications. And from that became not just better software for Amazon, but it became, you know, Amazon Web Services, uh, which, you know, today dominates the, the cloud computing. So cities need to, um, we need as an industry um, and, uh, you know, as a, as a planet, we need a sort of a real sense of a basic architecture that lets um, cities um, share share internally um, and share with their partners their utilities and uh, maybe their mobility companies and so forth and even perhaps share with other cities uh, and can quickly and easily be adopted so that's still um, not uh, well defined we've got um, uh, cities building their own kind of one-off city operating system they'll sometimes call it and we have some vendors working hard to sell their platform, but we still don't have that sort of common standards-driven open uh, city architecture that would really allow us to take the next big leap. Uh, Jesse, I want to pivot back to the organization for a moment. Let me, um, let me ask you a question around, just on that issue of scale, um, our our footprint as an organization, I mean, you know, it's, it's Seattle, it's 2012, you sit there in front of a computer, you know, you, you sort of start the council, you know, it's now 2019, we've kind of got a footprint in some of those, you know, more active, larger regions around the world when it comes to smart cities, Europe, North America, India, uh, down here in Australia and New Zealand, and of course, our interests in Southeast Asia and the ASEAN region are growing. Um, what, was was that was that ever part of the plan? What was the plan? I mean, how do you how do you sort of sit back now and have a look and think about you know the 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 growth and the expanse of of uh, you know what was you know one person kind of part time organization way back then? Well, you know, many of our founding members, IBM, Microsoft, Cisco, were uh, Itron were you know international global companies, so. Right from the beginning, all of us just assumed, uh, um, as it had been in the smart grid and, and many uh, previous technology ways, that this was a global opportunity and, you know, that many of the best ideas would be coming from other company, countries and um, many of the best 
sales opportunities would be elsewhere. Um, it was a two or three years before we really pursued that. And when we brought on our current CEO, CEO Philip Bain, one of his first charges was, okay, now help us globalize, help us uh, go international and, and you know, get a footprint in some of these other important regions. If I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be bold and ask you a tough question here about sort of the global perspective about different regions. Um, which region, which countries do you think have really gotten close to this idea of, you know, in, ingraining smart cities into their sort of psyche, you know, have, yeah. have sort of institutionalized it so much. I mean, what's exciting you when you step back and, and look globally around, around the market? Um, well, of course, Singapore, I think, is probably the world's smartest city and certainly has that, um, you know, a great enterprise architecture and, you know, a single sign-on for their citizens and access to hundreds of government services. Um, so that that's a great example. Estonia is, a, you know, a marvelous example of that, you know, comprehensive approach, um, sharing infrastructure and sharing data. And again, you know, a single identifier. And um, uh, uh, Dubai is, is, is um, making some progress, still a little bit stovepipe, but making great strides. And there's a number of other, um, China is um, doing some amazing things. It's such a large country. I don't think you could say that the country is a, as a whole, uh, but uh, they have some remarkable individual examples there that they are, you know, now starting to roll out to in a more standardized way. You've written, uh, you've read a lot, you've written a lot over the years. Um, I, I still come across people today in the marketplace here in Australia who, you know, who, who are very familiar with your face and your writing, even before I was, I was, uh, you know, introduced to the Smart Cities Council. Can you talk to me a little bit about content these days? I mean, everyone seems to be an expert. Everyone's blogging away. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff on the web around smart cities, and I think uh, in some instances uh, there's a lot of noise and and suboptimal content. And cities and the demand side, you know, are, are consuming, you know, that that content. Where do you feel? What's been the sort of the the, the arc of the journey of sort of you know writing? And, and providing good content around smart cities. I mean, you know, you, you're a keen writer. What's what's been your sort of view now, looking back over those over those many years that uh, you know you've written thousands of articles? Well, I think you know this sector suffers from the same issue that that um, uh, every sector and every social aspect suffers from, which is this. Uh, fragmentation and balkanization. There's, you know, so much noise that it's very difficult to to find the trusted source. And you know, there has not been any um, sort of single publication uh, that has arisen as the journal of record, right? Um, 
and uh, nor is there a single event. Um, and there are some some good, strong events that attract um, attention year after year. We have our own conferences and so forth, but there isn't that big uh, industry event like in, in North America. There was a Comdex show in the early days of computers, and it was a must-attend event, and you went there and you saw everybody and you and sort of we all sort of uh, got together and, and took the next step forward together. So, so that's I think uh, um, an issue uh, that you know, that it's so fragmented. I um, I want to ask you again another personal question. What, what, what's what's been the biggest achievement of the council from your perspective? If you look back, is is there one thing that you can put your finger on? Well, I think we 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 help to you know create some useful metaphors in terms of the readiness guide and the smart cities framework and the smart cities readiness journey that help uh, cities grasp the concept, get a handle on it, so they can in fact move out of confusion phase and into conversation mode. Um, so I think that's uh, was uh, important. I I think we're now pioneering. You know, the, the next transition, which is to get them out of conversation mode and into action mode. And as you know, Adam, we're, we're working on the Smart Cities Project Activator, which is an online platform where you can plan your projects and equally important, where you can find other cities working on similar projects to share your, your lessons learned. Uh, so I, I think, uh, what we need to be talking about more of in these um, publications and blogs is not yet another article about what is a smart city or another article about what this one department did to make, let's say, uh, you know, 10 blocks of streetlights better, <laughs> but um, how to deploy at scale. Because um, the smart cities is the, you're sort of the next example of essential infrastructure that will uh, provide a platform for years or even decades of future prosperity. And those who get on board in time will reap those rewards, and those who miss it will, will fall behind. Um, I could cite you dozens of examples for, from the last 200 years, but just here in the United States, think about the sort of tech boom and those cities that got it early, the, the Seattles, the Austins, the Silicon Valleys, the Bostons, really uh, saw a boom uh, and economic, tremendous economic growth. And uh, those who were slow uh, really suffered. So we, we face that same kind of urgency in terms of adopting, uh, you know, this next essential network or essential infrastructure. Um, you know, I'll just use, you know, my country as an example. The history of American progress and prosperity is largely a history of infrastructure investments that gave us a competitive advantage. So, you know, uh, the post office founded by Benjamin, uh, Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, was a, essentially a network and an infrastructure that made commerce and, and uh, other parts of life much more efficient and, and possible. And then we started building ports and, and canals, 
and networks, and then we put in a railroad network authorized. Um, the Transcontinental Railroad was authorized by Abraham Lincoln, one of our most notable um, and greatest presidents. And then we put in an electric power network and even extended it to every farm out in the rural areas. And we put in a telephone network. And then we put in an interstate highway network. And then we put in an internet uh, network. And in all cases, those who took advantage of that, and, and because we did it early, again, it gave us these uh, competitive advantages. And this is the next opportunity to gain competitive advantage. When you put in this infrastructure, you're not only helping your government, you're helping your citizens, you're helping your students, you're helping your businesses. And, and it's made all the more urgent by this looming climate change. Because these same technologies that make it um, possible for cities to absorb this enormous urban influx and to reduce congestion and and manage crime and all the other things are the exact same technologies necessary to become more resilient against natural disasters and man-made disasters, uh, both of which are, are increasing in both severity and frequency. I um, Coincidentally, it was just last week, I... Um, I was in the audience when a presentation around the data economy was given and it was, it was very much exactly what you just sort of described there. You know, this is now just the next nation building piece of infrastructure that we need to sort of in, invest in. I, I suppose, you know, what we have now in this sort of this future focused, you know, data economy, digital world infrastructure is not necessarily sort of one big, piece of backbone infrastructure necessarily even though we need of course good ubiquitous connectivity the, the the number of sort of apps and approaches you know whether it be ai or machine learning um you know the, the, there's a multitude of them um my, my question jesse is is there if i can just sort of call it an you know use the word app as a as a general word is there an app is there an app that's coming or is emerging or exists that you feel potentially really holds maybe one of the biggest opportunities to sort of achieve what we're what we aspire to which of course is greater livability workability and sustainability is there sort of something out there that's really exciting you that um that sort of you know you're keeping a watching brief on and that you think could could really be a game changer I don't see an individual app. I see an approach that I think could be transformational. And it starts again with that, you know, this kind of core architecture so that cities put in this fundamental, essential digital infrastructure, the robust citywide te telecommunications, um, a robust enterprise architecture for the city government itself, and a data sharing architecture. And once you get those things in place, then you can start bringing in data from all sorts of places and all sorts of departments, and you can feed that data in. And that's where you can apply these analytics um, and increasingly analytics that are powered by artificial intelligence or deep learning or machine learning. And uh, when you, once you start doing that, and I know, Adam, you've seen some of these examples, um, you, you get these amazing insights. Uh, you just can't predict 
you know, what data from which department combined with data from 10 other departments is going to um, allow these insights, right? Because they can, the computers can find correlations that humans can't spot on their own, right? And um, mm. so I think that's the big opportunity. Uh, so as you said, it's around data, but it's around amalgamating all of this data, not in one big database, but in data repositories that are based around a common architecture or at least have, you know, sort of loosely affiliated uh, so that they can share data and we can begin um, taking these really powerful looks at what's causing uh, what and when and why that'll give us the insights and the techniques to more efficiently operate our cities. I, uh, I'm certainly without almost... stealing from, pardon me, without stealing from future generations, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, uh, I, I think I'm seeing a shift and pivot in narrative around smart cities. And, you know, I've always been very clear with the stakeholders, you know, I engage with, you know, technology and data. And I think certainly the data, the data play is, uh, is becoming, um, uh, more and more of, of a key part of, um, you know, that, that sort of understanding of what's at the heart of the smart city. Um, probably the last question now, Jesse, I mean, uh, it's, it's sort of been exhausting, right? Seven years now you, you've been sort of generally in the space longer than that, but sort of put a marker in the ground, you know, establishing the council, one of the world's first, you know, kind of coalitions, uh, of stakeholders, you know, practitioners, technologists, policymakers that have that have sort of embarked on a journey with us. So seven years, uh, a lot's happened. What are you looking forward to in the next year or two? Well, I hope that we're going to begin to see these multi-purpose um, installations and projects. Um, of like the ones in Dijon, France, let's say, or, uh, you know, which is a sort of integrated operations center with, um, the, with representatives from the police department and the public works and many other city departments and, and can all see what's going on and, and getting data from all these sources to make, help them make better choices and increasingly to help the computer <laughs> make better choices, right? Mm. Because, you know, if you get, let's say, um, integrated corridor management like the I-75 in the, in the uh, Dallas area where they've got data pumping in from the state patrol and the state government and several counties and you know, dozens of cities that are along that um, congested interstate highway. And then the computer can analyze all of that and predict what's most likely to happen next and then send the repair trucks where they're, where they're Will, where they will be needed, just as in many cities now, they send the police to where they will be needed, uh, or even in Singapore, they send their taxis where they will be needed, because we, you know, increasingly can predict with great accuracy what's most likely to happen next, and and, and a you know computer can take all of that data and make the uh, that uh, interstate corridor as efficient as possible doesn't mean it's great but they can optimize it in it real time second by second 
making these little changes and changing stoplight timings and, and shunting people off to a, a side road because there's been an accident or, and sending out the, uh, the, the, the emergency response vehicles where they're most likely to be needed. All these little things you can do to make it better that humans can never do. So I'm hoping that that's um, where things will go next. Well, uh, a lot of our listeners are hoping the same, Jesse. Um, we uh, we need to call it uh, to a close there. I wanted to to thank you so much for joining us and sharing that um, that that sort of story and history and journey of the Smart Cities Council, which probably many uh, many didn't know about. Um, and uh, certainly looking forward to uh, the the coming years, uh, indeed. But for now, um, thanks so much for for joining us on the Smart Cities Chronicles. Thanks so much, Adam. My pleasure entirely. And so for our listeners, uh, our guest today has been Jesse Burst, the founder and chairman of the Smart Cities Council, the place where I work and get the opportunity to sort of try and uh, help create a better place and communities and cities. Uh, for our listeners who aren't subscribing to the Chronicles, you can do so on your, on your favourite uh, podcast platform. Uh, you can also visit our website, smartcitieschronicles.com. We also... Uh, love feedback or suggestions or ideas, you can email us. The email address is chronicles at anz.smartcitiescouncil.com. My name is Adam Beck, your host of The Chronicles. Uh, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to bringing you another episode shortly.